I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Long Beach, California. Located along the coast in the southern part of Los Angeles County, with almost a half million residents, Long Beach is the seventh most populous city in California. In the mid-19th century, the area that would become Long Beach was originally part of the expansive Mexican Rancho Los Cerritos land grant. The city's name is said to originate from the extensive Long Beach of Sandy Coastline that characterized the area. With the advent of the Southern Pacific Railroad in the late 19th century, Long Beach saw a surge in population and economic activity, establishing itself as a prominent port and trade hub. The real turning point for Long Beach came in the early 20th century with the discovery of oil. The city experienced an oil boom in the 1920s, transforming it into one of the most productive oil fields in the world. This period of prosperity led to rapid urbanization, and Long Beach expanded both economically and demographically. The city also witnessed the development of the iconic oceanfront amusement park, the Pike, which became a cultural centerpiece for residents and visitors alike. Today, Long Beach is known as a vibrant and diverse community, home to a thriving cultural scene, a bustling port, and a world-renowned university, Cal State University Long Beach. Today, Long Beach has a flourishing downtown, complete with restaurants, shopping centers, and tourist attractions. But in 1976, one spooky and macabre attraction horrified visitors when they saw what was really staring back at them when the lights went on. In 1902, Long Beach set up an amusement zone called the Pike along the beach on Ocean Boulevard. In the early 20th century, amusement zones featured various attractions like rides, games, and sideshows, and people flocked to them for entertainment. They were similar to a carnival, but these zones were built for long-term operations and typically had themed areas like modern-day amusement parks do now. Particularly around Halloween time, these zones saw a surge in attendance as visitors went there just to be scared. The Pike was popular in Long Beach for decades and went through a variety of owners and names. In the early 1970s, though, amusement zones had lost their allure, especially in Southern California where Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm had opened, and both of these attractions were fewer than 20 miles away from the Pike. Now known as Queens Park, although still called the Pike by locals, the area was now used primarily as a set for TV shows and movies. In 1976, a hit TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man was using the Pike to film an episode of the show. Now, this was an episode that was like the best of 70s technology, meaning if you saw it today, it'd probably be horrific, but back then it was freaking cutting edge. And it was basically about an astronaut who was taking part in an experimental flight and the flight went wrong and things blew up and he survived, but just barely. And so this CIA-like secret organization were able to rebuild him with bionics. And I think it was like both legs, an arm and something else. I can't remember. An eye. Remember that music? It was an eye. I can't even do it. But yeah, they're like, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. And it was like better, stronger, faster. And actually, the other thing too, Kathy, is that it was so popular that they actually created a bionic woman because the bionic man needed a girlfriend. Exactly. That's true. They <laughs> I mean, did. 
How can he date somebody who's normal? Who's not bionic, exactly. And he wouldn't be able to tell them because he's now a top secret operative. It was awesome because they would do it in slow motion where the bionic woman would jump eight feet in the air and you'd have that do 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 Exactly. <laughs> Again, it was so popular that like 20 years later, they had a couple of made-for-TV movies. And in the very last one, which was in 1994, the bionic woman and the $6 million man got married. And lived happily ever after. And being me, and you all know what I do with this, if that TV show was made today... It would be called The $40 Million Man. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know. Exactly. The $6 Million Man episode being filmed at the Pike was entitled Carnival of Spies, and they were using the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse. I hated funhouses. They always scared the crap out of me. I loved anything that was scary. I did too, but that was just too real. Not Sperry Farm. Not Scary Farm. Not Scary Farm Which, did you see they've changed the title of that in the last couple of years? No. They call it Spooky Farm. Why? I don't know. Because the Christmas time, it's Knott's Merry Farm. Mm-hmm. And so you have to do Scary Farm. I think all the locals still call it Scary Farm. They can rebrand it all they want. Exactly. But if it rhymes with berry, you got to use it. No, for sure. And that's where I learned my love of boysenberry. And fried chicken. Oh, that's true. <laughs> CDR. Chicken in a restaurant. So the premise of the episode was that Steve Austin, $6 million man, was fighting an evil German spy in an amusement park. So inside the funhouse, the film crew actually set up additional like pop-up scares to make the ride's spooky atmosphere even scarier. I loved anything scary when I was a kid. And you still do. I still do. And one of my favorite things when I was little is to spend the night at a friend's house and we would tell ghost stories, like the table that walked into the fire, or we would do light as a feather, stiff as a board. I never did That's Bloody not Mary. That's a ghost story. Oh, I know. But all of that stuff, like I was super thrilled by it. And I would stay up late. On Channel 13, back when I was a kid, if you stayed up till like 11, 1130, that's when they would play The Hound of the Baskervilles or Frankenstein or Dracula. The old movies. All the old stuff. I loved all that old stuff. And you know what's funny is I used to love scary. Now I can't do it. But we would tell ghost stories. But you were talking about like Bloody Mary and mm-hmm. a table or whatever. We used to make them up. Like I don't remember ever hearing an actual like tale. We did Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board like at Girl Scout camp. So like I never associated that with being part of it. Oh, yeah. But yeah, the scary stories were really like more around the campfire type thing. Ah, yeah. No, I had a friend named Laura who was she would tell a story so good and so scary. And every one of her stories was prefaced by. And this is true. (laughs) It happened to somebody I know. I'd be like, oh, my God. How do you know so many people who get themselves in such bad situations? How do you know so many people who see tables walk into the fire? (laughs) And do I want to be your friend if this happens to your friends? (laughs) Yeah, but I I never did Bloody Mary. That was way too scary for me. What is that? It's like where you go into a bathroom or you're looking in a mirror, you turn the lights off and you're supposed to say Bloody Mary 10 times at like midnight or something. And then she's supposed to appear in the (gasps) mirror. Yeah. Yeah. I could never muster the courage to do that. So anyway, the crew of the $6 million man were filming in an area that had mannequins hanging from the gallows in the background. A member of the production crew decided that one of the mannequins looked too creepy. It was covered with fluorescent red paint that glowed in the dark. So he tried to move it out of the shot. As he was moving the mannequin, its arm fell off and everyone screamed. They were able to see real human bones, muscles and tendons visible under the aged skin. The police were called and the body was sent to the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. Kath, at the time, the chief medical examiner was Dr. Thomas Noguchi, and he was known as the coroner to the stars, which is kind of funny. During the 60s and 70s, there was all these people who died in these high-profile situations like Marilyn Monroe, Robert Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Janis Joplin. 
John Belushi. Belushi. Yeah. And so he did their autopsies. And it, it's kind of funny to think of a pathologist being, you know, bandied about on television <laughs> exactly. and called the coroner to the stars. Exactly. As you just said, the police were called. But I read this article in 2011. It was in the LA Times by a journalist named Steve Harvey. He reported that a set designer for the $6 million man told the Los Angeles Times that after Long Beach firefighters came to the scene, one of them played a prank by calling some of his paramedic friends and told them to get over to the pike because we have a victim here with severe dehydration. Oh, my God. <laughs> and apparently they got there and looked at the body and it was uproarious laughter. But what was funny is, as I was researching this, there were actually some publications like this obviously is an old case, mm -hmm. but they were reporting that as real. Oh, how funny. Isn't that funny? That's total paramedic humor. According to an SFGate article by Katie Down, as detectives track down leads from carnival workers and museum owners, Dr. Noguchi performed the autopsy. The body was five foot three and was so dried out that it weighed only 50 pounds at the time of the autopsy. The coroner discovered that a prior autopsy had already been performed on the corpse. When the corpse's tissue was tested, extremely high levels of an arsenic-laced preservative were found. Arsenic was used up until the 1930s to embalm bodies. Inside the chest, Dr. Noguchi also found the copper jacket of the bullet that killed this man. This type of bullet had stopped being manufactured decades prior and, combined with the embalming technique used on the body, Dr. Noguchi believed the body was from the early 1900s. What Dr. Noguchi found in the body's mouth confirmed his hypothesis. There were ticket stubs from a sideshow called the Museum of Crime, as well as a penny dated 1924. These clues led the coroner to narrow down the man's date of death as sometime between 1905 and 1920. Now detectives just needed to figure out who he was. There was early speculation that perhaps it was a Central or South American mummy. And surprisingly, Los Angeles police told the media at this time that this would not be the first time they'd encountered that. But within a week, detectives were able to track down where the body came from and determined he was likely a train and bank robber who lived during the Wild West era. Photos were matched against images in the University of Oklahoma archive, and detectives were confident they had their man. His name was Elmer McCurdy. Elmer was born on January 1st, 1880 in Washington, Maine, which is about 20 miles east of the state's capital of Augusta. He was the illegitimate child of 17-year-old Sadie McCurdy. And there was speculation in some of the papers that I saw that although his father was unknown, one possibility that was bandied about is that it was Sadie McCurdy's cousin. However, very little is known about Elmer's parents. Sadie's brother George and his wife Helen adopted Elmer to protect Sadie's reputation. George and Helen took Elmer in as one of their own and did not tell him that he was adopted. After George died of tuberculosis in 1890, Sadie and Helen moved with 10-year-old Elmer to Bangor, Maine, about an hour north of where they lived. When Elmer was a teenager, Sadie finally told him that she was his mother, not Helen, and that she did not know who his biological father was. And as teenagers are wont to do, he became unruly and rebellious. And then as part of that, he began drinking heavily. I think it's interesting that she told her son she didn't know who the father was. It implies that she was perhaps promiscuous. but. It leads me to believe it probably was her cousin, like she didn't want to admit it. You know, Kathy, that's a good point. I actually hadn't thought about that. My thought went to the fact of 
you know what, this is kind of rural Maine. Even Mm -hmm. now it's more rural, but you would have had fur traders coming through and elk hunters or moose hunters who were looking for meat, and it could have been a crime committed against her. At some point, Elmer left Maine, but returned to work as an apprentice plumber for his grandfather. He was able to work successfully in this environment and built himself a solid foundation. However, he lost his job in 1898, he was just 18 years old, due to an economic downturn. Two years later, in August 1900, his mother died due to a ruptured ulcer. One month after that, his grandfather died from a type of kidney disease. Elmer spiraled after this trifecta of tragedy, and his drinking got worse. Elmer left Maine soon after and began working throughout the northeastern U.S. as a lead miner and plumber. Unfortunately, his alcoholism prevented him from holding a job for very long. At the age of 25, he moved to Kansas, where he was eventually arrested for public intoxication. It was after this incident that Elmer decided to move to the Midwest. At the age of 27, Elmer joined the Army and was assigned to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He was a machine gun operator and trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition. And, Kath, I think that's the component in dynamite, is it not? It's the explosive component in dynamite. There you go. Elmer was honorably discharged three years later in November 1910. He was now 30 years old and moved to St. Joseph, Kansas, and began living with an old Army buddy. A short time after that, both of them were arrested for being in possession of burglary paraphernalia. Kath, I read that they had gunpowder, money sacks, some type of funnel used for nitroglycerin, hacksaws, and chisels. Elmer and his friend claimed during the court case that the tools were not intended for a burglary, but instead a foot-operated machine gun that they were inventing. They were found not guilty and released from county jail. Okay, I don't imagine these guys are probably the best liars, so I'm thinking it was because they were veterans. Oh, I'm sure that's why. Okay. But Elmer's life of crime was just beginning. Two months after his acquittal in January 1911, Elmer decided to give up lawful pursuits He began robbing trains and banks. However, these attempts were rarely successful. After having used nitroglycerin in the army, he attempted to use it during robberies. Unfortunately, he was drunk most of the time and was largely unsuccessful in his demolition pursuits. He was successful in not blowing himself up. So, you know, there's one good thing. Two months after he got to Kansas, Elmer left for Oklahoma. By March 30th, 1911, Elmer had hatched a plan. In Oklahoma, he had convinced three other men to rob the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train that was rumored to have $4,000 in a safe. And in 2023 dollars, that would be Mm. (laughs) $130,000-ish. Elmer was in charge of breaking into the safe because of his military training with Nitro. He and his co-conspirators were able to stop the train and find the safe. Elmer put the nitroglycerin on the safe's door, but he used too much. As a result, the safe was destroyed in the explosion along with most of the money. (laughs) I bet his co-conspirators wanted to kill him. Yeah, they're like, oh! Anyway, so this gang of clowns, I mean criminals, (laughs) were only able to recover $450 worth of silver coins because most of it had melted to the safe's frame. So disappointing. Drinking and nitroglycerin do not mix. Exactly. Just six months later, on September 21st, 1911, this same group of chuckleheads decided to rob the Citizens Bank in Chautauqua, Kansas. The safe that they were targeting in this job was inside a vault in the bank with a heavy door. And while Elmer was able to blow off the vault door, 
the actual safe inside the vault was not damaged, not even a little bit. Elmer then decided to try and blow the safe door, but the charge wouldn't detonate. By this point, it had been hours since they had begun their heist at the bank, and their lookout man took off because he was afraid of getting caught. Elmer and the others decided to bail too and grab some coins in a tray that were outside of the safe as they fled. They only yielded $150. What's that, you're asking? How much is that in 2023 dollars? <laughs> that would be $3,200. Elmer decided to lay low in Oklahoma for a few weeks after this unfortunate turn of events at the bank, and so he went to stay at a ranch that was owned by a friend for a little while. While there, he slept in the hayloft and drank heavily. He was laying low because at this point he had gained quite a reputation for attempting to be an outlaw and failing miserably. Aww. I know, can't do anything right. Just two weeks later, Elmer and two others decided to rob a Katy train. Now, this was a nickname given to a railroad line that ran from Kansas to Texas. So it was the KT train. But over time, it just became the Katy train and the name stuck. This train supposedly had $400,000 in cash, which is $13 million in today's money, that was intended for the Osage tribe of Native Americans. However, these geniuses did not get on a Katy train, but accidentally stopped a passenger train instead. They searched and searched the cars, trying to find the safe to no avail, because there wasn't one. They were able to steal just $46, which is worth less than $1,500 today, from the mail clerk because they rifled through the mail. They also got two large jugs of whiskey. And Kathy, these aren't just jugs. Like in my mind, I kind of pictured it as... Like a yo-ho, yo-ho yeah. pirate's life for me. Exactly. <laughs> These were the size of those arrowhead bottles of water that you oh, like, like those sparklets things. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That you put on top of like a water cooler in an office. Hmm. That's how big these jugs were. A newspaper called this attempt one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. As soon as they were gone, the group immediately took off in different directions. Elmer decided to head back to his hideout at the Oklahoma ranch. He was understandably upset by the paltry amount of money they were able to steal and began drinking the two jugs of whiskey that he stole. Elmer soon fell ill with tuberculosis, which he developed as a result of working in the mines. And then he was also diagnosed with pneumonia and trichinosis, which is a parasite. Yes. On the night of October 6th, this is two days after they tried to rob the train, he stayed up drinking with some ranch hands and went to sleep in the hayloft. Little did Elmer know that there was a $2,000 bounty for his capture. According to the previously mentioned SF Gate article, unlike most Wild West scalawags who ran with established gangs, Elmer never ran with the same crew twice. He'd pop into town, take up gainful employment as a plumber, and make acquaintances with the neighborhood ne'er-do-wells. After robbing a bank or a train, or trying to, Elmer would take off, leaving his comrades to contend with local law enforcement. Law enforcement had an extraordinarily hard time finding him until the last train robbery. Deputies got to the scene quickly and used scent hounds to track Elmer to the barn where he was hiding out. Early in the morning of October 7, 1911, three deputy sheriffs, Bob and Stringer Fenton, who were brothers, and Dick Wallace, waited for Elmer outside the hayloft with several bloodhounds. They surrounded the barn and waited for the sun to come up. When they yelled at Elmer to surrender peacefully, he did quite the opposite. Bob Fenton, one of the three deputy sheriffs, said in an interview, we were standing around waiting for him to come out when the first shot was fired at me. It missed me, and Elmer turned his attention to my brother Stringer. He shot three times at Stringer, and when my brother got under cover, Elmer turned his attention to Dick Wallace, the third deputy sheriff. He kept shooting at us for about an hour. 
We fired back every time we could. We do not know who killed him. Elmer died from a single gunshot wound to the chest. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. If you're like Kathy and I and you enjoy a nice glass of wine, but you're not a connoisseur, let Dracaena Wines be your guide. Dracaena is the creation of Lori and Michael, a husband and wife team who both have science backgrounds. Michael is a food chemist and Lori was a microbiologist. So these two nerds did the hard work for us. (laughs) And we mean that in the most complimentary way. Most complimentary way. (laughs) My husband and I actually met Lori in Paso Robles. She was phenomenal and introduced me to her Cabernet Franc, which is to die for. They actually specialize in Cabernet Franc, Rosé and Chenin Blanc. And for the last 10 years, every vintage of their wines has received a 90 plus rating from wine enthusiasts. That's no surprise. It's so good. The name Dracaena is the genus name of the Draco tree, and Draco was the name of their beloved Weimariner. So all you dog lovers out there got to buy their wine. (laughs) Because they donate to dog charities. And you will get 10% off if you use the code KILLER. And they have a wine club that's called the Chalk Club, which I love. That's named after their dog named Vegas. Right. Their second Weimariner. Exactly. And that's because in Vegas, if you're betting chalk, you are betting on all the favorites. And they are taking the gamble that once you taste their wine, like Kathy with a C did, they will become one of your favorites. Not only are their wines delicious, they're reasonably priced. So to make a purchase, go to DracenaWines.com. D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A Wines.com. And on this site, there's a link to their weekly podcast and weekly blog posts, and you'll also find links to all of their socials. Hey, who needs to learn to drive? Seriously, who needs to learn to drive? (laughs) Or which friend of yours needs to learn to drive so they'll stop using you as their personal rideshare service? But without the tips. (laughs) (laughs) If you live in the Southern California counties of Los Angeles and Orange, Premium Driving School can help. Their certified instructors will help you pass your permit test, learn how to drive and get your license. And you'll be learning in a late model Mini Cooper. So that's fun. That's the best part. Premium Driving School offers a number of packages, including behind the wheel driving lesson packages for teens and adults and refresher driving skills lessons for mature and senior drivers. Maybe I should have Dick and Laura go there. (laughs) (laughs) Those are Kathy's parents, and I think you're actually right. (laughs) They could use it. (laughs) Lessons are available seven days a week and are based on each person's individual skill and ability level. Premium Driving School is here to help you learn how to drive and become a confident and safe driver, and it has a five-star Google rating. For more information, go to their website, learntodrivetoday.com. 
learn the number two drivetoday.com. And with the code killer D, they'll give you a 10% discount on your lessons. Elmer McCurdy's body was taken to Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Joseph L. Johnson, the undertaker, embalmed the body with an unnecessarily large amount of an arsenic-based preservative, which would keep the body in a lifelike condition for a very long time. This was typically done when the next of kin was unknown because a person couldn't be identified after decomposition set in. Mr. Johnson shaved the face, dressed the body in a suit, and stored the body at the back of the funeral home. He refused to release or bury the body until he was paid for his services, so the body continued to lie there unclaimed. Johnson eventually decided to exhibit Elmer for money. He dressed the body in a costume that he called Oklahoma Outlaw, put a rifle in his hand, and for a nickel, people could see the attraction he now dubbed the bandit who wouldn't give up. Spectators would sometimes put their nickel directly into Elmer's mouth, and Johnson would later retrieve the earnings. The public had a fascination with the Wild West during this time period due to dime novel melodramas. Elmer was the embodiment of this. This attraction eventually gained a carnival promoter's attention, but Johnson refused numerous opportunities to sell Elmer's corpse. And I have to imagine, Kath, it's because he was making some money off of this. Oh, I'm sure. It was reported that Johnson's children put the body on roller skates and played with it in the funeral home. As one would do. (laughs) At this point in history... So this is the early 1910s. Carnivals, circuses, and freak shows were all the rage. Phineas Taylor Barnum, best known as P.T. Barnum, and James Bailey were among the first to create a traveling circus. Naming their business Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth, Barnum was notorious for his drive to make money, but he was also regarded as a philanthropist. Prior to owning the circus, Barnum owned a museum called Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical Theater. In this theater, Barnum promoted hoaxes and schemes that essentially monetized people's deformities and differences, such as a mermaid from Fiji, which in actuality was just the head and torso of a dead monkey onto which he had sewn the tail of a fish. Spectators of circuses were entertained by marveling at human abnormalities, and there were very few ethical standards in this aspect of the show business industry during this time. This led to the development of sideshows that were separate from the main event that circuses had, and they were referred to as freak shows, getting their name from the term freaks of nature, and featured people who were strange or unusual. People who had conditions such as excessive hair growth, come see the bearded woman. People who were missing body parts, tattoos, and conjoined twins would be featured in these freak shows. And Kath, I will tell you, I had an experience with them once. Did they invite you to be a... Be nice. (laughs) What were you going to say? Go ahead. Finish that sentence. No, no. Go ahead. (laughs) No, no. I want to hear what you're going to say. Just go. Okay. (laughs) When I was living in D.C. and a friend of mine was living up in New Jersey, I would go up there every couple of months and we'd just play and go to Broadway in New York, restaurants, what have you. And so we heard about Coney Island, which is an amusement park at the beach. So it's like we grew up in Orange County. How fun. It's Disneyland in Newport Beach. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not that at all. But the beach was not what I expected. The people weren't what I expected. And then this amusement park, what was really weird, it had freak shows. And I was shocked because this was probably like late 90s. Okay. And I wouldn't think they would still be around. But the one that we saw, there was a couple who were there. One was a bearded woman. I don't think we saw one for a fish mermaid 
monkey thing. Right. <laughs> but it was, come see Bob, the drug addicted boy. Oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. No. And we that's didn't go so, see it. No, because that's so creepy. But I also couldn't figure out what they would be showing us. Exactly. Would he be like going through withdrawals? Would right. he be like, I, I don't know. So What a horrible thing. And it was probably fake because they said most of these were. It might have been somebody who was acting. I can't imagine it would actually have been a drug addicted boy who was behind a wall or behind a glass as opposed to being in right. treatment. That's weird. But I was. I was shocked. And honestly, I'm sure Coney Island's a lovely place, but it kind of rattled me. And right. I'm still not sure why, <laughs> but I think it was really more of the like, what would I see if I went in there? Exactly. Like the seedier part of life. Like, yeah, just ugh. so, yeah, I can't tell you what it was, but it was scary. <laughs> Prior to the existence of sideshows, the people who were in these freak shows were typically institutionalized and ostracized by society. However, some of these performers were able to find a great sense of community with other outcasts, and sometimes they were compensated generously. And Kathy, I read that P.T. Barnum was one of those people. I'm not defending him in case he didn't do good things to other people, but I know in some cases, and this is back in the 1910s, he was paying some of these sideshow performers thousands of dollars a week because of how much money they were bringing into the circus. That's incredible. Yeah. However, a majority of these performers were forced into the industry and their backstory was twisted into something that would be more interesting for audiences to hear. Sideshows began to decline in popularity as people became more and more aware of the exploitative practices being used. And as medicine advanced, science could offer an explanation for many of these seemingly supernatural conditions, so the general public lost the sense of mystery. The Chicago World's Fair in 1893 celebrated the advent of electricity and featured a mile-long stretch of mechanized rides and even the first Ferris wheel. Companies hoped to take advantage of the popularity of the World's Fair and this new way of entertaining the public, and traveling circuses began popping up. This is when P.T. Barnum transitioned from his grand and musical theater freak shows to Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth. So anyway, back to Elmer McCurdy's corpse being used as a sideshow. On October 6, 1916, Five years after Elmer was killed by a posse in Oklahoma for robbing a train, a man named Aver called the Johnson Funeral Home and said he was Elmer's long-lost brother from California. Aver had already contacted the Osage County Sheriff and a local attorney to get permission to take custody of the body, and he had a note proving the validity of his claim. They wanted to ship the body to San Francisco for a proper burial. The next day, Aver and his brother Wayne arrived at the Johnson Funeral Home, and Johnson agreed to release the body to the two brothers so they could put it on a train to San Francisco. Instead, it was shipped to Arkansas County, Kansas. Aver and Wayne were not who they said they were. They were, in fact, brothers, but their names were James and Charles Patterson, and they were the owners of a traveling carnival. And I think it's funny back then that you could have a note that said, this is who I am and I would like to take this. And everyone goes, oh, you have a note. Exactly. <laughs> it must be true. Although all the notes I wrote to my uh, dean in high school were not true. <laughs> but I wrote perfectly in my mother's cursive. <laughs> <laughs> After this, Elmer's body became a feature at their carnival and was displayed for everyone to see. Six years later, in 1922, the Pattersons sold the body to Lewis Sonny, who had a traveling show called the Museum of Crime. At this time, Elmer's body was included in an exhibition of wax figurines of other criminals 
such as Jesse James and Bill Doolin. And Kathy, I had to look him up because I'm not familiar with the Wild West, but he apparently was one of the other Wild West outlaws. Then the corpse was leased to a filmmaker in 1933 who was shooting a film called Narcotic. The premise of the movie was that Elmer was the corpse of someone who did drugs. So maybe Bob, the drug addicted boy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And committed crimes to fuel his addiction. The film depicted the body being shot after he tried to rob a store for pills. And Kath, his corpse was even displayed in theater lobbies as a promotional tool for the movie. That is incredible. And they knew it was his corpse. Right. They knew it was his corpse back then. The other thing, Kathy, that I read is that at one point, Elmer's corpse was part of a traveling sideshow that went to Mount Rushmore. But the corpse suffered extensive wind damage due to this because he was transported on top of the car like a Christmas tree during a windstorm. Oh, my God. I wonder if Chevy Chase was driving. (laughs) (laughs) What was that movie? It was one of the vacations. Oh, Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation. That's right. That would have been the. the... Where grandma was on the roof. Exactly. Yeah. After Lewis Sonny died in 1949, Elmer's body was passed on to his son, Dan. The body was placed in a Los Angeles warehouse for the time being, alongside wax figures. Now, 38 years after Elmer's death, his body had been covered in layers of wax and paint, and enough time had passed that by the time Elmer's body was taken out of storage, people were not aware that it was a real corpse. Dan sold the body in 1968, so now 57 years after Elmer's death, along with some other wax figures from the Museum of Crime to the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. This museum's claim to fame was that it was the sole wax museum featuring only celebrities. That's like Movieland Wax Museum. Have you ever gone to one? I went to one as a kid. I never understood the lore of those. I honestly didn't either. To so be, like, why'd you go? Well, I, I don't remember who I went with. I mean, I was a kid, so I probably went with my mom or something, but I was very unimpressed by wax figures. They never look like the person. No. Elmer took up residence among the other dummies at the Hollywood Wax Museum, but he apparently didn't stack up to the other figures, these celebrities, because he was soon moved to another cheaper wax museum, which went under in the 1970s. In lieu of unpaid rent, the museum sold off its collection. It was then that the body was sold to the owner of the Pike in Long Beach. The new buyer thought this was just another mannequin, albeit a really creepy one. And, as we all know, by 1976, the body was part of the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse Exhibition. After Elmer was identified, many people tried to claim the body, but the Los Angeles Police Department felt that it would be inappropriate to simply hand it over because nobody had a note with them. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the coroner's office held on to Elmer until April 1977. Fred Olds, who worked for the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns, which is an organization dedicated to preserving the history and traditions of the Old West, convinced the L.A. coroner, Dr. Noguchi, to bury Elmer's body in Oklahoma. Satisfied that no living relatives were coming forward, Dr. Noguchi agreed to release the body to the Oklahoma chief medical examiner. Upon arrival, Elmer was taken to Guthrie, where the city council voted to donate a final resting place. City spokesman Bill Lehman said, We just feel he should be laid to rest in a Christian manner after 66 years of being bandied about from pillar to post. I love that quote. I do too. (laughs) Hundreds came out to watch as a funeral procession transported Elmer to the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie. His coffin was carried in a glass-sided hearse, which was pulled by two white horses. The hearse driver, the funeral director, and some of the others in attendance wore period-appropriate clothing. About 300 people attended his service. 
Before internment, a minister gave a short graveside service. He said, Elmer McCurdy, now after so long we can say, dust to dust and ashes to ashes, and lay you down to rest with those whose company you sought in life. He was buried next to Bill Doolin, that outlaw that you mentioned previously, and with whom he was once exhibited in the Wax Museum. To be certain that this location was, in fact, his final resting place, two feet of concrete was poured over the casket. Now, I am sure they did that because this would have almost been like a kitschy thing to oh, like go, absolutely. go get Elmer out of his grave. On April 22, 1977, Elmer McCurdy's body was finally laid to rest 66 years after he died. You know, what's interesting, Kathy, too, is on his gravestone, it has date of death and date of internment. Oh, interesting. But does not explain why 66 years went past. Huh. In case you think Elmer's story was unusual, this month, October 2023, another story like this was recently covered in the news. Stone Man Willie had been on display in an open casket in a Reading, Pennsylvania funeral home for 128 years. One night in October 1895, Willie was drunkenly walking the streets of Reading and he was arrested by police. Six days later, he was arrested again for burglarizing a boarding house. After both arrests, he gave his name as Willie Penn and was supposedly 37 years old. He died in Berks County Prison on November 19, 1895, due to kidney failure. Since he gave a fake name, authorities were unable to notify the family of his passing. The body was sent to the Theo C. Almond Funeral Home, where he was accidentally mummified by undertakers. And Kath, really quick, just to go back. When Willie's body arrived, Almond had been experimenting with a preservation technique that was developed during the Civil War, creating the effect of mummification. So the corpse's moniker as Stoneman Willie was accurate to his condition. If you touched his skin, it felt hard as stone. On display in the funeral home, the body was dressed in a tuxedo from the 1890s, and after being mummified with all of its organs being removed, weighed almost nothing. Like Elmer McCurdy, Local residents, curious tourists, and school children would go to the funeral home to gawk at the preserved body. Can you imagine if you were a kid and that was a field trip? No. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All these second graders. <laughs> I know. <laughs> On Saturday, October 7th, 2023, Stoneman Willie was finally identified. Kyle Blankenbiller, the current director of the funeral home, helped to determine who this man was. In the last 10 years, Blankenbiller said he and his team did more research into Stoneman Willie and went through several books and archives to try and determine an identity. ABC News reported that Blankenbiller said it was a matter of writing things side by side chronologically and comparing these stories. After a lot of digging, Blankenbiller said they were able to determine his identity with 99% certainty. He was James Murphy an Irish New Yorker who was in Reading to attend a convention for firefighters. Kathy, I read that the reason that James Murphy gave a fake name when he was arrested is that Murphy's obviously an Irish name, and he did not want to embarrass his father by having his name associated with this, and so that's why he gave a fake name. After Willie's name was revealed, he was driven around and took part in a parade celebrating Reading's 275th anniversary. He is now buried with a granite tombstone at the Forest Hills Park Cemetery in Reading. The tombstone displays both of his names, although his real name is only in small print at the bottom. 
there are plans to eventually install a plaque next to the gravesite that details his story. So friends, if your Halloween involves haunted houses, bear in mind those mannequins might not be fake. Thanks for listening. And we actually wanted to thank one of our listeners, Stuart, who reached out to us and said, as a big UK-based true crime podcast fan, I love your podcast. Love your wit and wisdom, Golden State Voices. Is that implying we have accents? Because I don't think we do. Thumbnail sketch of U.S. cities and towns and zany sense of humor, spelled the proper British way, as well as your erudite legal comments. Oh, nice. Thank you, Stuart. I think he was talking to me and Kim Kardashian. I, you know what? You're right. You <laughs> did pass that baby bar. <laughs> Keep up the good work, KNC. We hope to see you one day at CrimeCon UK. That would be awesome. We hope to see you there, too. I'll have a Sherlock Holmes hat on. <laughs> and we'll practice our British accents. Exactly. Because that won't annoy anyone. <laughs> Much like our Southern accents we adopted in Chattanooga. Exactly. <laughs> Join us on Patreon. If you haven't already, go to patreon.com, look us up. We have three tiers to choose from, and they're all fantastic. 